Hey, my name is Connor Malley, and I'm the founder of SQR Squash Radio. And it turns out I'm a squashpreneur. What does that mean? Basically, an entrepreneur, but in the squash industry. I've founded Metro Squash in Chicago. I've been a teaching professional, tried out for Team USA, came nowhere close to making the team. But years later, I did find myself on the business side as director of Team USA. I've ran the US Open while working at US Squash for several years, done consulting for squash clubs and events, even court construction. The list goes on. These days, I'm still deeply involved in squash, especially with the Pro Squash Tour, but trying to expand into other racket sports in lighting, court construction, and strategy. There's some exciting projects I'm working on, and I can't wait to share them. But in the meantime, we hope you're enjoying these squash-focused podcasts our team is helping to put out. We love doing them, and we hope you enjoy them too. How did he help influence your approach to coaching and your philosophy? I don't want to speak for him. I can only say what my perception is of his coaching, right? I think one of the biggest things that maybe he and I parallel on is the fact that we take a a sincere interest in every individual that's a part of a team culture, right? And I think that Mm -hmm. recognizing an individual and making sure that you're there for that particular person, where they are, what they need, and, and somehow integrating that into an overall team culture that is is all about let's compete, let's train hard, let's do everything that we can to be as good as we can be, but let's go have dinner together. Mm-hmm. And let's make sure that we keep everything in perspective in terms of the way that we treat one another. Because ultimately, like the way that we treat one another is more important than any title. What about this? This call is being recorded. Hey, Squash fans, welcome back to Squash Radio. I'm your host, Connor Malley, and I'm very excited for this episode to come out because I'm getting back in the game of doing my long-form interviews. And the man that got me out of retirement is someone I've known for a long time. He's uh, originally from Hartford County, Maryland, but calling in today from Wayne, Pennsylvania, and that is Rob Krizak. Welcome to the show. Hey, Connor. Thanks for having me. Super excited to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to having a a great conversation today. Yeah, me too. It's been fun kind of talking before this interview about what we want to try and cover, and there's even some more developments that we can share later on the show. But I was thinking about how to kick this off, but at my core, I love all racket sports. Some of my, my, my best days I've had ever are just involving playing multiple sports like how would you consider yourself yeah i would say i'm a rackets guy i grew up a tennis player went to towson and played for four years grew up following my mom actually my mom was a huge tennis player in maryland she was she won a bunch of state titles we played together in the mother-son u.s open back when equitable the bank used to, to host that got to go to the u.s open and do that whole experience together which is pretty interesting we're in the lead in the semifinals of the U.S. Open and a geese, a flock of geese flew over our court and pooped all over the court. And they had to stop the match for probably close to a half an hour, wound up losing in a tiebreak in the third. But amazing experience. Imagine as a kid when you're 16 years old and you get a player pass at the U.S. Open to hang out in the locker room for a week and you're oh comped in the hotel and the whole thing. But yeah, I was I when I moved to Hartford. After hanging out with Paul Asiante and, and getting introduced to squash at the Baltimore Country Club in the early 90s, I had visions of going on tour and playing tennis and all that. And he introduced me to squash. And 
really from the first day that I set foot on court, I completely fell in love with the game and then went on to move up to to Hartford after meeting Rich Mayer, who was like, how many times did he win national championships mixed in men's and platform mm-hmm. tennis? Working with Paul, learning about all the different sports, he was one of the first directors ever in the history, probably up there with Briggsy at Apawamas to do multiple sports and be able to do them, play them and coach them at a high level. So when we moved, when I moved to Hartford and he helped me get the job with Rich as a squash assistant and tennis and platform assistant, that sort of set the stage for what I did for the rest of my life. Yeah, I I can honestly say I'm a big rackets guy. Been doing it for a long time. Long time. I got to ask, what was the experience like first working with Paul Asante, who's just such a legend in the game? Yeah. How did that go down? It's an interesting story. I actually, when I was at Towson and I was getting ready to graduate, I talked to him. I was like, geez, I need to get a, I need to get a job. I was also studying for the LSATs at the same time. And I took the bus. I found out that there was a job opening. I took the bus. It took me like two hours on the bus because I had no idea what I was doing. And it was all these connections. I finally get there. I think I got there like an hour late, which is not me at all. And then I go in and I talk to Paul and he's like, I'll talk to you. I've already hired someone. And I was like, really? And we wound up having a two and a half hour conversation that day, just about life, liberty, and the pursuit of rackets and everything. And just super hit it off. And I walked out there. I was super excited about meeting him because if you've ever talked to him, he makes everybody feel like they're a king or queen. And it takes such a good job of taking interest in people and walked out, felt a little dejected, but really happy to have met him. He calls me like two hours later and said, look, I let the other person go. I really want you to come work for me. No way. And yeah, totally. And that was, that's what I did. So as I was closing down Towson my last year, I started working part-time and then went in full-time, but working with him was amazing. We, we had like an incredible relationship. He gave me one of my first cars, basically, like he sold it to me for the cheapest thing, helped me get my job. He's a person that I've continued to stay in touch with all these years. But yeah, there's that's a whole nother podcast, probably talking no. about early, early years. We spent two and a half, three years together at Baltimore Country Club. And I worked a lot with him, did a lot of track workouts, a lot of sauna workouts, and just tried to support him and had the most eye-opening experiences of my life to date. So yeah, it was pretty cool. Had he already been doing world team tennis at that point? Or where was this in his career? That would have been way before world team tennis came, I think after I left Hartford to go back down to BCC to become the director in 2000 when I got married to Narelle. Got it. You know, just quickly pausing on um, with Coach Asiante. I mean, in the early days, because we we obviously know a lot about him from um, what he's done at Trinity, and mm-hmm. it's just remarkable the impact that he's had on the sport. Um, really helped to be one of the breakout stories, which is rare for our sport, which is so small. And I, I think the future discussion that will happen is not just with the Coach Asciante effect, but truly the Trinity effect of the players that have then gone on to then stay in the United States, the impacting generations. But if you could help rewind the clock a little bit and tell us an early Coach Asante story that maybe highlighted a little bit of what was to come in his future. Does anything jump out for you? He and I were basically Batman and Robin for three years, right? I was working six, seven days a week, 
we were training together. I would say the biggest thing, one of the biggest impacts that he ever had on me was from a physical fitness standpoint and understanding the discipline that you had to have in your, in your mentality every day to just go at it, taking care of your body, beating up your body, making sure that you're always trying to get better, that you're always working hard and always pushing me to the limits. Cause honestly, the guy was nuts. This was when he was, this was when his body was in good shape and we would do every day he would coach, we would go up at lunch, we would run up the hill. And I don't know if you know anything about the BCC Hill at the old facility, but it had to be like a 60 or 70% grade. So we would go and do hill sprints up that, jump in the sauna, do 30 to 60 minute sauna workouts, or jump on a bike or jump on a, a stair climber or whatever, and just absolutely kill it. And then go back down and give lessons and train in the afternoon. And then guys would come at night and I would play sets with them. Or if we were in squash season, we would go up and play some dubs, do some training. And then I literally would be on court from 3.30 until 8 every night, either soloing or playing matches with guys because you couldn't get me off court unless I was organizing stuff for him. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul has gone on to really distinguish himself in like how he brings together teams and helping them achieve peak performance. What ways did he help influence your sort of coaching philosophy? Because you've gone on to help you know, juniors achieve the highest level in the United States in squash. So how did he help influence your approach to coaching and your philosophy? I think I don't want to speak for him. I can only say what my perception is of his coaching, right? Because I've seen what he does, but I know he brings to it his whole thing. I think one of the biggest things that maybe he and I parallel on is the fact that we take a, a sincere interest in every individual that's a part of a team culture, right? And I think that mm -hmm recognizing an individual and making sure that you're there for that particular person, where they are, what they need, building out a, a calendar of what that person is going to need and, and somehow integrating that into an old overall team culture that is, is all about let's compete, let's train hard, let's do everything that we can to be as good as we can be, but let's go have dinner together mm -hmm. and let's make sure that we keep everything in perspective in terms of the way that we treat one another. Cause ultimately like the way that we treat one another is more important than any title. Yeah, so, completely agree. Yeah. And uh, in terms of working with teams or individuals, do you have a preference? I, look, I've been coaching for a long time, whether it was at, like at the field club where we had, it was incredibly individual based, but we had anywhere from 40 to 60 kids that were ranked at any given time and kids that were ranked really high, like lots of kids that would be ranked in the top 10. At Hartford Golf Club, when it was early stages, back in the days where there were just the, the gold tournaments, and that's all there was, you would, actually yeah. take, you would actually take teams of kids from your club that were gold, silver, and bronze levels and dump them all into one bowl and mix it around and see how it works, but have dinner every night with the families. And it was this really nice, really nice community, really nice club aspect. You almost traveled as a club. Yeah. So Lawrenceville, now I guess I've been there. This is this will be my 14th season. I'd have to say I, I love the combination of working with individuals and developing individual schedules and individual sort of roadmaps and pathways and blending that into a team format. I think the kids nowadays, it's really nice for the kids to have that season of team and have it not just be all about them 
and the pressure of them competing and having a result. The team breaks that up. There's We're under construction right now at Lawrenceville. It's been a really topsy-turvy um, environment because we had COVID that sort of broke up our culture. Then we were able to have a really nice culture last year, but that got cut short again in February because the school is going through this massive renovation project. So I think all the kids are super hanging to get back into our little family bubble where every single day they can come and check out the wall of snacks and share and just be a part of the feeling that they have when they're at the courts at the school. So we're all looking forward to that. One of the things uh, I enjoy asking coaches is, and, and, and you've been involved for a long time, and think of all the technology changes that have gone on in the past, mm. just even 10 years, 20 years, culturally, the, the way that things have adjusted, whether it's like focusing on sports and an increased focus of that and specialization. It's a challenge to continue to adapt your coaching style. And what are some of the ways that you've adapted or most dramatically adapted your coaching style to meet the players where they are today? What, how, how have you approached that? I don't know if players are really that much different. I don't know if the relationships are really that much different than they used to be. We've always modeled everything that we do on having or taking an interest in every player, no matter where they are, and trying to coach a, a diverse group of kids, right? Because in the end of the day, there's not that many kids that are going to come through squash and become squash professionals. But in providing the experience throughout the years and the days and the months of whether it's a beginner, whether it's an elite kid or anywhere in between, whatever the interest is of the kid, just trying to make sure that we're optimizing the experience of that kid and just helping educate kids and families and that sort of working through that triangle to make their experience positive. Because let's face it, if you look at stats, of sports, like 80% of all kids quit when they're 15, right? So mm -hmm. if we go off that stat, what's our goal as a coach? From a technology standpoint, I think the technologies that have come into place have only enhanced experience, right? To a certain extent, whether it's like the club locker system that you and I were talking about for tournaments, like how cool mm -hmm. is that? That you can basically real time, massive draw, like 300 kids all at the same time and everyone can see What's where they on? are live real time they don't have to just hang out when i was early on we, we were doing everything by handwritten draws and you had to show up and then just hang out and wait right so it's now you have cameras on courts right so just the live streaming aspect you can video libraries and kids can go back and check out their matches you can live stream things to families across the pond that want to watch their kids play to, to a lot of other simple things but it's yeah no i think I think the technologies have enhanced. I don't think the kids have changed that much. While I do mm -hmm. think that specialization has probably created a more, there's just greater depth in everything now, right? There's just better players and greater depth in everything. So maybe that makes people feel like it's different. I don't know how much it's different, but we, we like coaching all kids. So where, wherever sort of it is at that particular time, you coach and just enjoy the process with that kid. Yeah. If I were to pull some of your teams over the past couple of years and I would ask, hey, what, what does Rob reinforce constantly? Like, where is he a broken record? What would be some of those sayings that you're constantly reinforcing? What would they say? I think one, they would know that they're going to have to do a lot of challenge matches. So okay. they're definitely challenging a lot. 
we definitely have a tendency to work through a lot of the same condition games over and over because I'm always trying to help kids understand how to take their tools and their capabilities and increase their capacities, right? So wherever that is, right, in a given length game or in a given side game, can you figure out how to construct points? Can you figure out how to read the game better so that you can increase your capacity and play better under pressure? You'll definitely hear us in huddle in, in Lawrenceville and all, I think all the other high school teams, we huddle, when we huddle up, there's certain things that get said. And if you were to ask kids, they'd probably say, what's he gonna say? And he's gonna say, look, let's do the best we can, but let's make sure that we handle the eight alls, the nine eights, the nine alls, the 10 nines, the eight tens better than they do today. Because that's what it all comes down to, right? You can break games into thirds or however you want to do it and make sure you reassess throughout that process. But at some point you're going to be serving at eight all or nine, eight. And the question is going to be, how do you handle that situation? Where is your headspace? And it's different every time, right? Sometimes you do a better job than others, but you just want to try to keep putting yourself in the position to recognize that you're there and then have routines and capacity to be able to deal with it. So that's what I'd say are some of the things. Yeah. If a player is in that situation, the eight alls and uh, nine alls, and I agree, I often try to help players think that you're going to be in that position and how you handle it. What are some sort of ways that you encourage players to handle those pressure situations? A lot of that comes from the practices that you put in. If you practice, routines. When you get in those tight spots, we are lucky at Lawrenceville that we have two really competitive teams and we actually train our girls and our boys together from a community standpoint, our girls program is always really strong and, and we blend that in and, and we're always competing at practice. So there's no, mm-hmm. we're definitely drilling, but I would say 80% of what we're doing on a given day is competitive oriented, right? Because in any given day, some of the kids are going to come in some headspace and some of the kids are going to come in other headspace. So we're always relying on the kids that are feeling really good on a day to pull up everyone else. And it, it just de- never allows people to take a day off. Let's get in there. Let's put in. And so I think that that translates into match as well, particularly if you're addressing it in practice, right? You're working on the routines. You're working on how you handle situations. You're working on... the the controllables that you can deal with and you're trying to filter out the other stuff that can happen in a given day. So we're always testing ourselves in practice so that when we get to matches, we know how to handle those situations. If you had to look back on over over the, your coaching career and the seasons that you've had, what season jumps out to mind is, you know, there's an obstacle for either you coaching or your team. And then how did you guys get around that? You hear the football coaches talk about it every year, like every Every year is so different, right? The makeup of your team, yeah. who your captains are, the new players that come in. It's really hard to say. I think it's a blessing to have the opportunity to restart it every year. Like you're going to you're going to carry over culture because you have captains that have been a part of that for a certain amount of time and you have kids that have been a part. And so I think from a macro you're trying to make sure that we have that umbrella that sort of yeah. takes care and houses like our community, but that particular year is going to be what it is. And, and we're going to, we always set up with sort of basic principles in the front end of the year. We have the, the coach speak, right? We sit down, I'll talk to the captains. Look, what are our three things, whatever it's going to be that we're going to try to hit on this year? What's important to you guys? What do we want to do as a team? And then it's just 
trying to get kids to have fun and enjoy process. Like we want to go to nationals and do really well. That's a, I think a big goal. I don't know what that means. Do really, I don't think we say, oh, we have to do this or it's a failure. It's just, you know, can we get seven girls and seven boys to be super healthy emotionally, mentally, physically in February to have a really good process and build really good relationships throughout the course of the year. And then just to compete their butts off on the weekend so that they do well. I, I don't, there's so many good experiences each year, just on the daily and then in competitive situations and all that stuff, the conversations that you have with kids, there's way too many things I think to super highlight. It's just, it's a really fun process to work with a group of 20, 22 to 26 kids on a given year and take that and see how it grows over the course of three months, four months. That's great. I'm, you know, I think the past 20, 30 years, we've learned so much about the physical side of things of like how to stay, get in shape, nutrition, that's really become far more mm -hmm. apparent and easily accessible. I still think the mental side, while we've certainly increased, we, we all acknowledge how important it is, but I don't think the, it's as clear that there's any one single path, but I'm curious, how do you support a player mentally? Because these players go on, they're in high school, they're mm -hmm. juggling just the regular mm -hmm teenage activities, but you're also trying to get them to compete. So like, how do you approach that with your team over the season on the mental side of things? Look, I'm a parent too, right? I have two kids, two boys, one, one's a senior in high school. He's going to go play college squash. The other is a freshman in high school. And I've certainly done, I don't want to say that live vicariously through, but I've made just as many mistakes as a lot of other parents. I'm sure if they really sit down in the mirror and look at themselves, right? the mistakes that we yeah. make with our kids, the expectations that we put on top of our kids. I have a really, Matt Munich, we have a really good friend. He's a really good friend to us. Our son, Will, when he was like 12, maybe started talking to Matt. I went to Matt when I was writing this curriculum, this triangular curriculum to help parents and coaches navigate the tournament schedule, in particular for kids that are starting into competitive play. And so Matt was... He and I had always talked, but he started talking to Will just about the pressure Will felt to help Will because we set Will up for like non-success when we were early on. And what I mean by that is he was playing AAA lacrosse. We were driving all over the place, like 70,000 miles uh, a year, <laughs> taking him to tournaments. No oh yeah, totally. We One year we put almost 80,000 miles on our car. And, and I know other parents can relate to this, right? Taking him to AAA oh, practice, gosh. taking Blade to AAA practice lacrosse, take him to all the matches. One year Blake's team record was 46 and nine when he was, when he was nine year old in lacrosse, just to give you perspective. So we do this to Will. And then we're like, oh, you have two squash playing parents that have been coaching forever. And people may know them a little bit in the community. And we're going to dump you into tournaments and be like, go for it, man. But we're only going to let you practice once a week and then say, go play a tournament. Like, that's stupid. But we were just trying to at least keep a racket in his hand. And obviously, he could hit some with us so that if he ever wanted to play full scale, he at least had some skills. But that said, that can be harmful for a kid, right? If you do something like that to them. Do you think that there is an element of not wanting to push your kid in the squash and help them explore their own talents? Was that, what was your takeaway from your, what you guys did as parents to then how you course corrected? 
I can't speak for all parents, but I would say a lot of parents probably in the industry that they're in almost push their kid away from that because they don't want to put that pressure on them because that they know what you hear stories. It doesn't mean that you can't handle it really well. I remember seeing the, I don't know if you saw the thing, the book of Manning and the dad with Eli, but it's a really good ESPN show. And it talks about Archie Manning, who maybe whose dad committed suicide and he saw, he walked in on it, but then how that impacted and what grace he had in dealing with his kids and through all their athletics. And the guy is just a model of a dad, what you would want, right? Full circle back to, to Matt and how you, the things that you can help the kids with that you're training through and then talking through Will, Will learned about the spot on the wall, right? He learned about developing routines, breathing techniques, focus points, stuff like that, that you can use in competitive situations to, to recognize where you are, have some self-awareness so that you can be mindful when you're and present when you're playing points, the next point that comes up, right? Because we talk about that all the time. The next point, right? I obviously have to assess what just happened because that's going to be input for what I do next. But then how do I transition that into a headspace of being completely focused now on what I need to do, right? Particularly if it's eight all, because I don't have a lot of time. <laughs> I can't lose my focus for two points here. It's an important time in, in the match. So whether it's been talking to Matt, whether it's I've been going to USPTA conferences, I've been listening to reading books, talking to other coaches. I was just involved in a really cool level three course at US Squash. That was a, a, a hand-selected group of amazing people that we, we got to just do conversations and breakout rooms and discussions about all that kind of stuff. So any of those sorts of things that for someone that's been in the business for a long time, it gives you the ability to then take that and give it to the kids at your school and help them. Because I would say 50% of what I do is working in headspace with the kids. And I'm not like a professional psychologist or anything like that, but just helping them sort through their day and get them to the right place when they can get so they can go on and compete as well as they can. That makes a, a ton of sense. And one, one of the questions, two follow-up questions from that, but one I was going to ask you about how you keep your coaching blade sharp. And I, I heard you mention a few things right there, but could you expand on that or just, or I guess what, what's the nugget that you've heard in the past year or two that you're you really latched onto and you're like, this is amazing and you're incorporating into your coaching. So how do you keep your coaching blade sharp? I think just go on an Instagram or a Twitter feed or anywhere, YouTube, there's so much information that's available mm -hmm. to anybody that has an interest in inspiring people. I'll send little snippets to kids on Instagram all the time. We'll have a conversation and I'll, there'll be like a, a Mike Krzyzewski or there'll be like, you can't get on Instagram and not see a Kobe Bryant thing these days. Right. And, and just any of that kind of stuff is inspiring to me. And, and I think it translates into the kids that, that you're working with, but yeah, I've always been, I read books, I watch YouTubes on people. I listen to discussions. I listen to Ted talks, like all the stuff. It, there's everything's so readily available and it's so much easier now to be informed and to learn and to constantly be reeducated in what we're doing. And I have a, a great training ground too, right? I have two amazing groups of kids that I work with at Lawrenceville. And then 
all the kids that are outside that I get to practice with all the time and learn. That certainly gives a lot of background and context for you and your your passion for coaching, your excellence in coaching and switching gears a little bit to where you are now. And obviously you're still doing the, the coaching at Lawrenceville, but you're also following your passion of other racket sports and you're getting involved in more things. So let's talk a little bit about Padel and the landscape of racket sports globally for sure, but more specifically in the United States and share a little bit about what, what's been going on with you here. As you know, like I became a rackets director in the mid nineties and, and really from Hartford golf club back to Baltimore country club up to the field club of Greenwich and then to Lawrenceville, I've always been involved in multiple racket sports, whether that's coaching people in multiple racket sports, running programs to create member experience through multiple racket sports. So it's always been a passion of mine and something I'm interested in. And, and obviously Padel, which is one of the fastest growing sports in the world that not enough people in America know about now, but in two years, they're going to know a lot more about because yeah. the wave of the wave of courts is coming. It's like this build behind the scenes. And I think there's a lot of people in the industry that know about it. I'm not so sure that there's a lot of people in just normal flow of life know about Padel yet, but it, it's coming. It's one yeah. of the, it's the fastest growing sport in the world. There's yeah, sports I, everywhere. I it's crazy. I totally agree. And you and I, who are so deep in the racket sports industry, and you and I started hearing about pickleball way back in the day. And I remember Terry Graham, who was at Wilson and then left. I think this was in 2015 when she was like, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm leaving this job to go start the U.S. Open of pickleball. And we even then were really, is this going to do it? And But she was reading the tea leaves, the landscape. And wow, that was amazing. And look at the success there. So And now mainstream pickleball of the past two, three years has had this total rise, meteoric rise that everyone's talking about. But I, yeah, I agree with your analysis that Padel, we probably want it to happen sooner rather than later, but it's coming. Right. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about your, just let's start f first from your on-court experience and helping describe that by comparison to your other racket sports. Real fast, that's just circle back to Terry Graham because this is how, I don't know how long I've been or old I've been in the industry. I first met Terry Graham at Baltimore Country Club. This is before she was Wilson, when she was with Ectalon. And she was coming on a regular basis because Asiante was designing one of the first squash rackets, oversized squash rackets with Ectalon because it was only a racquetball racket. Full circle, I saw her down at the trade show at the USPTA. I literally talked to people for four and a half straight hours because there was lines of people that were interested and wanted to talk about Padel in various sort of various places. But she came up, gave me a hug, and she she's amazing. She And she's always been at the front end a little bit early with things. So yeah. I was super happy to hear that she was doing so well with the, the big pickle, the big, what is the biggest pickleball, biggest tournament like in the world or some crazy thing. And she's great. So she's doing really well. But for me personally with Padel, I, you know, I were, I were talking off camera about this. This is like the first game that I've played. I remember when Asiante first introduced me to squash, I got on the court and from the first day that I got on, you couldn't get me off like every single day. That's all I want to do, show up solo, play games with people. And Padel, I think, is having a similar impact on people as well. You put a racket in their hand, you dump them on court with three other people. It's super easy to learn. 
It's easy to play. I would say probably a little bit easier than tennis and squash. And it's just fun. And the vertical on it in terms of learning, there's so much to it, but it's not hard to it. It's easy to it. You can get a lot better in a short period of time. And for me personally, it marries that squash background and that tennis background that I have. It's the best of both worlds. Like I know how to read the corners. I know how to serve in volley. I know how to cover with doubles, like where you move in terms of doubles and the angles that you cut off and things like that. Plus it adds a whole nother dimension where you're doing a lot of lobbing and a lot of overheads, a little bit like platform tennis. So it's kind of the mix of all of those sports together for me. And it's easy on the body, right? Because it's on the turf and it's a deflated tennis ball. And the paddles that they have go through the ball. So yeah, I'm loving it. I'm new to it, I'll say, but I'm loving when I'm playing and I'm getting a little better each time. Yeah, I completely echo a lot of what you said. And and there's been those moments where I've stepped on a court of some sort and I had this like total aha moment. Like, oh my gosh, this is, I'm ad- instantly addicted. And that definitely happened with Padel. And I, from my assessment, I almost think of it as one of the purest racket sports I've ever encountered. And what I mean by that is everything from the sweet spot. Oh, it's when you hit it in the center of the, the rackets, it's really nice weight in your hand. Un, for mm-hmm. me, platform, mm-hmm. the racket is really light and the ball is really heavy, which creates a lot of tension in the wrist. And that's hard to get your racket around it versus right. pedal. It's like very right. nice weight balance. And when you connect, like you can really quickly generate a lot of power, which then you need to control. I, I also love that it's social. It's having doubles is just really makes it ex- instantly exciting. Like you got a teammate. Mm-hmm. And I think that's mm-hmm. where the pickleball success is really drafting off of certainly doubles tennis being the lifeline of the sport there for there. So I think it has so many ingredients. Like you said, it's easy to pick up. It's it combines the geometry of squash and the fun of tennis. And it, it, for me, like I said, it's the purest racket sport I've encountered. Yeah. If you, the interesting thing to me about Padel is that if you're a creative on a squash court, like you're a shot maker, it's, it it is unlimited. The things that you can do in Padel, like the angles that you can create, the spins that you can create, the zones, the heights, there's just so much variety and the up and back when you're in a good game is phenomenal. There's just the angles and the shots and all those different things that you can play into, I think as you get better. So from a pure rackets person that has a background in rackets, you're going to jump into this game and be like, holy cow, there is the world is the, my oyster. Like I can do so many things in this game. From a beginner standpoint, if you have some a C-level group of ladies or like a, an older group of guys or like wherever the, the beginner, like a beginner group of kids They can go in and with a five to 10 minute, here's how you play because the same scoring in tennis and start playing a game. And you don't even need to necessarily use like you and I know there's glass and there's corners and all that kind of stuff that you can play into at higher levels. But I would say 90% of the game for people when they're first starting, it's all in front of them. Just volley it where it's back there, take it on the, take it on the short hop, try to cut everything off. And as you get better, you learn a little bit about the corner. So I do, I like the assessment of the purest game. I think you can definitely say that because it really puts everything together in all those other games and provides almost the best opportunity to use those skills in combination, right? Yeah, totally. I always enjoy when I'm talking to the people and they haven't heard of it because it's still, like we said, it's new in the U.S., just quickly YouTubing like best Padel shots. 
and oh people gosh. go insane. Oh my it's gosh. insane. It's, it is. And not only that, but how many of them can there be? It's once you think you've seen one, these guys and these women are so athletic. And when you've played it so many times, you just get the angles of the court. You know what everything's doing, but the varieties and it, it's off the charts insane. And even if you knew nothing about it, if you YouTube and you look at the best paddle points, you'd be like, holy cow, that's crazy. Yeah. Not that yeah. we can go on and do all that stuff right away, but we can definitely go on. If you put four similar ability people on a court, and even if you had a couple of people that were better and a couple of people that were weaker, everyone can still get a great workout, have a lot of fun. It's super community oriented. And you're going to, you know, if you got your whoop on, you're burning a lot of calories. So it's not just like being on a treadmill, right? I totally agree. I think it brings together all the um, the best aspects of the other racket sports. But right now, a constraint is if anyone's listening to this and hasn't tried the sport, maybe they're getting excited and intrigued to try it. But that's a challenge right now that there's, <laughs> it's limited yeah. of how many places yeah. you can do it. So I think you're closer to this than I am right now because it's been a minute since I've checked in on the stats. Like, what's the high level state of the union on where it is globally and then in the US? There was that Deloitte article that came out, I think, if anyone read it, and we can always give people, if they ever wanted to contact us, to throw that out to them. But there was an article that came out that did a really good job of presenting Fidel and where it is and, and where it is in the world and what the potential is in the United States. And I think in that, it was like, there's maybe 250 courts. I can't remember the exact date. It was probably a year or two ago that they did it. There may be two 250 courts, but in the next decade, there's going to be 10,000 plus courts in the United States. In Spain, there's over yeah. 20,000 courts. In Mexico, there's thousands and thousands of courts. In South America, it's everywhere. In the UK, everyone is putting Padel in. Sweden, Finland, all these different places. Like It's growing like wildfire. And I think... A lot of that's because of the reasons that you and I were talking about, right? It is so community. They have this really neat modeling in Spain where clubs work together. It's not high moat stuff. It's all low moat stuff, right? Easy access. We're building out utilization in our facilities by working together and sharing people because that creates one, the best member experience. And two, ultimately creates a win for us as an owner of a club. And, and I think people are seeing that sort of modeling out there and they're saying, hey, wait a second, there's only 250 courts in America. We need to start putting up facilities here. We want to be first to market. We want to get involved in this. It's a great, not only just to make money, but because they know it's such a great experience and it's an easy in for people if you have courts, to your point, right? You need yeah. courts. If you have courts, people can play. If you don't have courts, it doesn't matter what yeah. you do. You can do whatever you want, but there's nowhere to play. I'm not playing. So it's important yeah. to get courts built. Yeah, and that's definitely part of uh, what we want to try and help change in America and provide that access to it. And the other character we should bring in and talk about is Lee Witham, who's instrumental. In, and frankly, he was early to this for me. He's He was telling me about this because he's living over in Spain. He yep. got to witness this firsthand. And Lee is just like yourself, has also been involved in squash for such a long time, an extremely successful coach, but has gone on to then really go on the business side of things, everything from lighting, court maintenance, worked with him for a long time. But let's talk about Padel and, and quickly give your background of Lee too, because uh, I don't think I'd fully appreciated how far back you guys go. Lee was 
maybe I think Lee was my first international hire that I ever made in my life. Right. I think he was over. I, honestly, I was a rackets director. I'd gone to Hartford as an assistant when I was 21, 22. And by the time I was 25, the club actually offered me the job to be director of their rackets program. And we redid all the singles courts, put in four international courts. There was a lot of momentum at the club, right? Not only in that, but we had six platform tennis courts. We had nine hard true. There was a lot of really good vibe. So the club was opening they were open to building out our labor force to be able to accommodate the growth that we had. We had a really good junior program. Kids were going to TAF. We were having national ranking. Kids were going on to be captains at Yale, playing in Ivy Leagues, playing all over the place. And I brought Lee in because, you know, I wanted to get that sort of international softball expert kind of guy on our team to be able to add value to all the kids' experience at the club, right? And as you and I both know, Lee is a super system guy, right? And the oh. way that he coaches, and but he is exceptionally knowledgeable in terms of how to take someone from a ground zero build through a system to get them really good at, and being able to strike a ball really well, move in a court really well. And then if that wasn't good enough, he's excellent in terms of teaching kids how to tactically build points. And so he, honestly, he's probably one of the biggest influences besides Paul, besides Lee on my coaching, right? The, the couple of years that we shared together and just the information share that we got to have, I'm still doing stuff on court that I learned from Lee. Full circle, this is what, mid nineties, maybe a couple of months ago, there was a contact between Narelle and him and he's, Hey, I got this really cool thing going on in the UK. And I didn't know if you knew, but there's some stuff going on. It's coming to America, right? It's like the movie it's coming yeah. to America. So we need to get, I need somebody there boots on the ground that can start driving business for me because I'm still busy in the UK and I'm still in Valencia and it definitely makes it a lot easier when there's a US number than when there's a number in Spain. It's not that Spain is great because you need Spain because all of the best stuff is produced there. And yeah. from a quality standpoint and cost standpoint, it makes way more sense to do it there. But you need boots on the ground here that can sort of service and drive and do all those sorts of things to promote court sales. So Lee, yeah. so full circle, Lee and I have joined back up. I'm helping him now on on that side of things boots on the ground and just having an absolute amazing experience for the last two months two and a half months doing it yeah and that's the umbrella is padel plus which brings together just such a network of best-in-class products and experts and let's talk a little bit about the courts themselves because ultimately that's what we're trying to get into the market talk a little bit about the courts and the rough price points that people are interested in. What is that range? Because we get asked that all the time. So let's just talk through it. There's a lot of different pressures out there, right? If anybody clicks online, you can see it comes up. We source our product through Jubo Padel, who's based out of Valencia, where Lee is. And they're a family-owned company for the past 25 years. I think they started in the tennis industry and morphed into, I think they're still doing some of that, but they've morphed into building and manufacturing some of the best padel courts in the world, right? They have, think about it, 25 years 
over 5,000 courts, over 50 countries of producing, working with the best engineers, having partnerships with colleges in Spain to produce amazingly high quality playability, just like fashionable, <laughs> their infinity court that they've just put out that, that they used in the A1 Padel tour and are using down in Miami is first in class. It's, it, it can take wind speeds really over 115. Is. It's just the most amazing court that's been built to date. And I think it has all the other manufacturers out there scurrying to see if they can put out a product that's similar. But again, there's a lot more that goes into it than just putting up some steel and some grates and some glass. There's the engineering that goes into that process. It's like cooking, right? You don't just become a good cook once you start cooking, you got to cook for a while to learn how to blend all those ingredients to make the thing that's going to taste be just like, holy cow, this is amazing. And I think Jubo is a master chef at producing Padel courts, right? Because they've been cooking for yeah. a long time. So yeah, we're super excited. They have similar values as we do, and we're very happy to be distributing for them in North America and Caribbean. Yeah, I think a, a distinction, you sort of highlighted it, but let's talk about the differences. You said that Jubo's family owned. And so if what does the other landscape look like if they're not family owned? And what impact does that have on the market and customers? I can only really speak to the fact that I think us knowing that we have a trusted relationship with Jubo and it's been in company, the same family has been running it for a long time, just makes us feel super comfortable sourcing from them that we know the product that we're going to get and we know that we can deliver on that product because they've been doing it for a long time i think there's other companies out there and there's people that distribute for them they have their own relationships i can't really speak to, to what that relationship is and how that works i just i know that lee started a relationship with them like a couple of years ago it's been phenomenal Carlos has been amazing to work with for Lee, and I'm super excited to continue that relationship. I can speak to what I've seen in other, and it's not just Padel, but other manufacturers, I'd say that there's family owned, there's individually owned, and then there's, you get the outside investment, whether it's venture or private equity. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen play out is like those who are family owned, they stay true to what their core product is and they don't mm -hmm. deviate just for money or just for these other reasons. So mm -hmm. the outside factors, I think, can really influence the direction of either, hey, we need to cut corners or do we really need to do that? Do we need to always do geometric studies? So it's cutting corners and or staying true to what got them there. I think that's a good point. I think we're actually producing an article right now that sort of speaks to this a little bit that'll be coming out in the coming weeks. But understanding that when you get into something like this, you want to be working with people that you can trust and people that are going to help you no matter what, right? Whether it benefits them or not, you just want to learn what the right steps are in, in taking this process. And you'd mentioned cutting corners, whether it's shipping, whether it's not doing geotechs, whether it's not making sure people have visas when they're coming over, whether it's all the different things that can go into the process of getting a court into your backyard, into your facility, at your club, there's a lot to talk about, right? It's not just a simple process. And so I think one of the things that Lee and I are trying to do is help people and help guide people 
through that process so they feel really comfortable. They understand comparing apples to apples and whatever the outcome is in the end, we feel good that we've helped, whether it's a, a PE group or club management or a, a private investor that's putting something in their own house, make the best decision for them. Yeah, completely agree. I think that's probably a good time to also bring in. I'm very excited about this. This has been something I've wanted to do for probably two or three years now, but really get more of a Padel focused podcast going. And so I'm excited to share that we're gonna we're gonna give this a go. And Super Rob, excited I, too. Yeah, I can think of someone else that would be better to do this, kick this off with, and just see where this takes us. And we, we were talking a little bit about, hey, how can we help? get more information into the market, help people understand what's going on, where is it going. But also, I love bringing on guests. And so maybe talking a little bit about who, a little bit of that direction, what we're thinking and give as, share as much as you want or hold back as much as you want. But yeah, talk about your thoughts on the podcast. I'm so early to this too. So to be honest with you, my knowledge base in the last two months has grown exponentially, right? You know, and I know that I've been doing this for 30 years and I've been building programs and helping people operationally and, and designing staff for stuff. And Lee has this amazing ability to help people in facilities management areas and things like that. But the conversations that I have on a continued basis, whether it's in out in the West Coast, the Midwest, down in Houston, San Antonio, down in Florida, whatever it is, and the different types of conversations that you have, whether it's a club, it's a someone that wants to put it in their backyard. There's a huge swing right now in PE and venture capital money to model out four to nine court facilities with technologies and minimal labors where the returns are phenomenal. And so people are really looking into that model. I think there's some struggle in certain places on permitting process and working with municipalities to be able to generate timelines that work. It's hard. There's a lot of friction there. There can be friction there, but that doesn't mean that people aren't trying to do it. So I think we have an opportunity in this podcast, and, and you and I have talked about this off air, to go regionally around the country and meet with people that are in, that have that cloud level vision of what they want to do, but are also in the weeds of building facilities of coming up with ideas and different models in the industry to produce some pretty incredible opportunities for people to play Padel all over the place. And I'm super excited. We're already working on our guest list. I have some pretty interesting people that have agreed to do it. We'll leave that as a cliffhanger and start introducing yeah. it as we go down the road. But yeah, I, I can't wait just for me to learn. And I know you're interested in learning about it too, but just to hear people's stories. Because there's a lot of fantastic yeah. stories out there in the Padel world. I think we have the ability to capture that to be pretty cool for everyone to hear. Yeah, I completely agree. And one of the things, because you mentioned the A1 tour, and we got to talk about the Central Park event that's going on and share a little bit about that, what's going on, what's going to be happening. Yeah, A A1 Padel with the New York Yankees put courts in the woman ice rink and 4,000 seats and used Jubo Padel's Infinity Court to showcase a huge professional tournament, which is what a cool thing. It's also going to be used down in Miami as well. But yeah, I mean, that that's the kind of stuff that's going on. I think one of our guests that we're going to have who's involved in the Pro Padel League and has a team down the road can probably speak a lot more in depth about what the Pro Tour looks like and who are the people on the Pro Tour. But you've got 16 phenomenal players, a majority of which are from Argentina, 
playing in front of people, a lot of people that have probably never seen it. I know we're taking, we're having guests that are coming in from around the country to see it. Most of them probably have seen it on YouTube, but haven't seen it live. And when you see it live, it just jumps off. It's one of the coolest things you'll ever watch live. Yeah, I personally haven't had a chance to experience it. So I'm, I'm hoping um, I get a chance to do that soon. And what's still amazing to me is you said that they're setting up 4,000 seats. Mm -hmm. It's a little disheartening someone who's run so many professional squash tournaments to hear out of the gates, they're doing 4,000 seats. Like We have room to grow there in the squash world, but it's just amazing with the excitement worldwide and it coming to the U.S. Yeah, talk a little bit about also where are the hot pockets of Padel right now in the United States? Yeah, teams in the professional Padel, those teams are going for millions of dollars. People are buying them. They already have TV rights on in multiple places. It's being backed. I think there's a guy in Saudi Arabia that's that's backing it now. I think the two tours are combining. There's a lot of interesting things that are happening. And when you have money that backs, you have places that are building out infrastructure to be able to take care of the teams that are in place and to run these really big tournaments. And and there's TV involved, right? So that it gets it out there that Matt to the masses. It, you're just setting yourself up for success at that trickle down success from a high level, right? The fact that it's going to be in people's TVs and YouTubes and all that more than just like the little clips is pretty cool. Pockets, obviously Miami is probably one of the hottest pocket, right? You can't get on a, you can't get on a court there from six in the morning until 12 at night. It's you're waiting weeks and there again, people are looking into building more courts, but that takes time, right? It's not like you can just pop up a court. And it's not like real estate in Miami is cheap, right? But you have there, you have New York. There's a couple of new facilities that have just gone in. South Norwalk, Juan and Patricio just put in a really cool facility there. There's stuff in Houston. There's a lot of courts in Houston, that sort of area. LA is going to become, I think, a hotbed for interest. The Chicago area is going to have stuff. Philly, where I live. It's only a matter of time here for every one of the private country clubs has Padel courts. Yeah. There is a public facility that opened up less than two years ago. And the number of hits in that facility in terms of people that have gone has been incredible. And everybody that goes, we, Narelle and I both go to Padelphia. It's I love the name, awesome. by the way. What a and name. A great, what a name. Isn't Padelphia <laughs> a cool name? It's a great place to play. We get to go and hang out with friends and hit, and it's super easy to get in and out of. But yeah, that kind of stuff's happening everywhere in the States. And I think all of a sudden we're going to go from, there's probably way more than 250. There's probably closer to five or 600 courts that are already in existence. There, there are people that have them in their backyards everywhere. And there's probably these little underground Facebook things where people are playing and booking and doing all that kind of stuff. But I would say legitimately, there's going to be a lot of courts and facilities that come on market in just the next year or two as permitting opens up and more and more facilities can get through that process. Yeah. And, and you just think of the markets you just described and we're not even talking about the Denver's. Yeah. That's another uh, hot minute, bed, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So there's so many, <laughs> yeah, I'm just so excited. So excited for this. Before I, I have a tradition where I do a quick fire section, but before I go uh -huh. on and ask you uh, those questions. Is there any closing thoughts or anything else that we want to talk about before we move on to the quick fire? 
No, I think the big thing is how much fun are we going to have for the next year or two doing this podcast? Like talking about, I think we'll wind up talking, we're going to talk a ton about Padel and we want to do that. But I think there's an opportunity to talk about a lot of things just in rackets in general, because both you and I are enthusiasts in rackets, right? Because whatever racket you have in your hand, if you're having fun, if you're being entertained, if you're staying fit, if you're hanging out with your friends, like that's what matters, right? That's what we're, any of us that have been involved in this industry for a while, we just want people to have fun and be involved, get a racket in your hand. It just so happens that now we think that Padel is going to be one of the next phases. So it's, it's cool to get in on that wave early and ride through it, learn as we go and just inform people about what that's going to be. I completely agree. And I'm very thankful actually to pickleball. I, I personally don't enjoy it as much, but I'm very yeah. thankful for pickleball because it's really forced. I think racket sports used to somewhat compete against each other. And mm -hmm. I think pickleball has broken that model that you can't ignore pickleball. You need this included. And now let's involve more racket sports and work together. I, that's my optimistic side. And I think we're going to have a golden uh, era of that. And my goal is to have more racket centers that are publicly accessible. I think in private clubs, this happens routinely and people mm -hmm. have a great time with mm -hmm. it. But how do you make these more commercially available, more publicly available, where you can go from playing multiple sports? And I do think that the approachability of pickleball and padel are going to bring more rackets players into the ecosystem it's a great point and, and i think that a majority of speaking about pickleball facilities or speaking about padel facilities in particular they are going to be low moat opportunities because most of them the modeling the business modeling is going to be based on rental and that yeah. means open door rental it doesn't mean that you can't have memberships it doesn't mean that you can't have full memberships or semi-memberships but a part of that business is going to be the rental model. And that's, I think for me, one of the things that I really love about Padel is that it's going to provide more opportunities for people that can't necessarily afford like these big membership costs or down payments. You can just come in and pay. And even if you can't afford whatever a membership you, but you can pay a per time cost when you go. So it's going to just involve a broader socioeconomic demographic of people, which creates more fun, a bigger community. And I'm looking forward to seeing how that works. You just reminded me when you think of golf, if you and I wanted to go play golf right now, we could find a public course for 50, maybe $60. Right. Exactly. And then you have the other end of that spectrum where it costs like $500,000 to join a private club and get the top bells and whistles. So right. I think that's where that accessibility really comes in. Unlike golf, which I love to do, but it's hard to carve out four hours or five or six with transit. So right. playing racket sports, you get that same sociability and you get it done in a more condensed time and a higher workout. So, yeah, yeah. I agree. Like I'm a huge golfer. Like anybody would, all the kids on the Lawrenceville teams would tell you to disrupt. Yeah. He plays golf. One of my favorite things about golf, right? Again, it's put a club in your hand, put a racket in your hand, whatever it is, but be social, meet other people. You have four hours of just dedicated time where you're walking with someone or you're driving with someone between shots, just talking to them, getting to know yeah. them, developing friends. And that's what any of these sports are all about. Totally agree. So cool. So cool. Appreciate that. And we're going to switch gears into the quick fire. And it's just a way to get to know you a little bit better in a different context. Sure. All right. We're, we're going to start off easy. Do you have a favorite movie or documentary that comes to mind? Favorite movie? 
Shawshank. Shawshank. Yeah. Yeah. That was great. What about documentary? Oh, I love the documentary on Jordan. The six part. Yeah. The six yeah, part the series. Six part. Yeah. I love that. I think that was amazing. I can't remember what the name I, was, but I think I've watched it like yeah. four times because how can yeah, you not? It, I think they also really set a new standard on how to do documentaries. Like it was just very involved it, it, and it took someone who culturally, Michael, we had the sense of we were, we've known for so long and just put a whole new light on him. It mm. was really, I agree, really fascinating. I love the way they did it. I love the whole thing. I loved revisiting that time. How can you not like watching someone that won everything they did and they were MVP every time and just the whole back to what we were talking about, the change in landscape, right? Like the NBA, like it's different now than it used to be. Sports are a little bit different. Like uh, it was the way that they used to, like the physicality and just the grittiness and the whole thing was pretty amazing. I loved it. If this was a Hollywood movie, you almost wouldn't believe it, right? Then he retires, go tries baseball, then wait. I'm coming back out of retirement to come win another championship. If this was Hollywood, you would say, I, this is fiction. This is this would never happen. Yeah, totally. And then, oh, by the way, if you know anything about him, like the shield, the shoe deal that he orchestrated with Nike, and then the fact that he just sold his majority stake in the Hornets or whatever for how much, and he's like worth $3 billion. Like what a, the guy's like off the charts, right? Yeah. I don't know him yeah. as a person, but from, I think from a business sense and just an athletic sense, and it did, I don't think he was always the nicest guy in the documentary, but he certainly, oof, he got it done. He knew how to push people. Yeah, totally agree. So next question is, what is something that gets you fired up? And this can either be in the world of squash or outside the world of squash. It doesn't matter. And either gets you fired up positively or negatively. And then, you know, forces actions. What gets Rob fired up? What gets me fired up? Jeez, that's a great question. I can get fired up or down like pretty, pretty easily about stuff. I'm pretty even keel. I'll tell you what gets me fired up when people don't play by the rules. That's what mm. gets me fired up. I can get pretty, pretty jacked up having been around sports all my life. I like seeing kids compete hard and train hard, but I like seeing them play the right way. Something that gets my goat is if I'm watching matches or I'm seeing something and I'm seeing kids doing things that maybe they shouldn't be doing in competitive situations and coaches and parents sitting there watching it, thinking that it's okay as long as the result happens. Yeah, that's that gets me fired up. There's a saying, which I've, I've always loved, is sports doesn't build character. It reveals it. And I'm curious, as a coach, and have you ever had a scenario where you called something on your own player because you're like, hey, that's not right, and you guys lost or something like that, like where doing the right thing was more important than winning? Is there a story that comes to mind for that? I know I talked to Mark Lewis, who's one of my really good friends in life, and he's the coach at Middlebury. And I think he had a he made a deal with his team where if you do any kind of curse or throw your racket or anything like that, I'm pulling you off the court. And it just so happened, I think he had to pull a kid off the court in a massive match. And the kid looked at him, he's like, yeah, you're off. I don't know if I've ever pulled a kid off a court. I don't know if I've ever had to quite get to that place. But that doesn't mean that like between that point or outside of that, I haven't been like, what are you doing? That this is the right way and this is how we're supposed to function. And I think we've all been in the heat of moment. We all make mistakes, right? We all do things that I could have done better. Like it's easy to look back. 
I just try to use those moments, those individual moments to bring it back to our umbrella and say, not, we're never pointing specifics. We're never trying to make anyone feel bad because no one's perfect. And I'm the last person that could ever do that, but let's all learn from it. Let's try to get a little bit better from it and let's let it reinvigorate our culture of what we're trying to do. Right. We want to do it this way. And it is possible, by the way, I don't know what you think, but it actually is possible to conduct yourself in the right way and compete hard and have success. You can define success however you want. Most people define it by wins and losses, but I think it's possible to do. We definitely preach it. We're trying to keep it, keep the dream alive in this day and age. Yeah, totally. So the next question, I'm going to give you a scenario and you already alluded to this, but TED Talks, right? So you're familiar with TED Talks? Yes. Okay. So the, the scenario is going to be Rob Kryzak is going to give a TED Talk. Yes. And it actually can't be something that you're known for. Service level, we know you love racket sports and all this stuff. Yet you're going to have to pick another subject matter that you're not well known for. And you're going to have to share that as your TED Talk. So this could also be something maybe that you've always wanted to go ex- get the opportunity to go explore and then share. Right. So yeah. what would be your yeah. TED Talk? Yeah, I, I would say like a lot of people probably think that I'm pretty serious in life and everything about me is athletic and because I've always been in that world, but I'm actually, I would do my TED talk on sustainable living and organic gardening and beekeeping. And I'd love to do a TED talk on living off grid, sustainable living with making your own food, growing your own food, having bees, having a farm. Maybe that farm has a couple of squash courts on it or a couple of padel courts or a couple of pickleball courts, and we could get some people to come in and cook for them and play some games and do a couple of TED Talks. But yeah, it'd probably be something like that. That's amazing. Is there anything like that that you and your family already do to live that kind of sustainable living? When we moved to Wayne, we moved to an apartment. So we sold our house. So our carbon footprint is pretty low. I immediately started gardening in the backyard. It's always garden something. It's always organic. I had bees for the last couple of years. Unfortunately, my neighbor sprays mosquito spray and tick spray Mm. all the time because I'm in a city in Wayne. So the bees don't work out really well for me here, but I did get 90 pounds of honey. Wow. Yeah, I know. Right. It sounds like a lot. We had two nuclear queens in, in a couple of stacks, a couple hives, And they just went solid. It was like the most aggressive two colonies of bees. They would not let me get near anything because they were on a mission and they crushed it. And then the funny thing is each time I had them before this sort of goldenrod bloomed and the asters were blooming as second phase of nectaring this, there's always every year that that sort of lull period, June into July, where you've had the spring and you lose it. We didn't have enough sources here and then people are spraying. So it just... (laughs) Never worked out. But again, if I had a, a, a little farm or something over there, I'd try to have like probably 60 hives if I could just to do it. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I get to learn a little bit about beekeeping and I didn't, I really didn't appreciate this, that you'd have different colors depending on the season or what they were going after. So w- when you collected that 90 pounds, was it all the same coloration or did it shift even during one season? Yeah, I think, yeah, we're early, like in June. So it was a very light honey that we took out. But I think like over the course of time, 
I think it can change colors. I think where you are in the country too it can impact that, like the type of things that they're pollinating off of. I also, to be honest, did a lot of sugar water because I was paranoid like early on that I was going to lose the bees again because I'd already lost them. I'd had really good success up until a point, but then they either swarmed or like we got robbed or whatever it was. There's a lot of different things that can happen with your bee colonies. So our take was really light. And that probably had to do with the fact that a lot of their source was sugar water, but it's still amazing honey, right? I'm still eating it. I've still boxes of honey. So it it's super cool and you can give it out to people and people love that story, yeah. right? Oh, you had bees? Oh, totally. Well, that's so cool. Yeah, yeah. I want to do something, right? But I yeah, fun. That. It's fun. And before we move on, what are you growing in your back or what do you like to grow? I typically, when I grow stuff, like when I was in Havre Grace before, like I grew everything, but my 100% organic and like lots of indigenous sort of species as much as possible, trying to create micro cultures, growing things that like to grow together. Typically you'll see when they put, you look at a roadway and you'll see them plant like native flowers and you're like, great, that's great. But they're planting like monocultures and there's no like microculture where you have grasses and plants that work with shrubbery, that work with trees like that. What that does for root systems and how that makes everything work in the bug sources and the eco chain is an important thing. So I haven't done that as much here. I did that a lot at my old house. Like I grew every, all the tomatoes, all the peppers, all the melons, didn't do a lot of potatoes because they get really buggy. Lettuces, any kind of thing that you can think of, I, I would grow it here. Lettuces, I don't have the same microclimates here. In Habergrace, we had perfect soil, perfect sun, perfect wind, perfect setup. Here, it's not as good a setup. You know, I fiddle with it. That's great. We're, we're certainly going to have to dive in more of that on future podcasts, <laughs> but I appreciate, appreciate sharing yeah, that. It's sure, fascinating. Absolutely. Yeah. On a closing note here, you know, it's just sort of sharing either some information. What's a great book? that's impacted you that you've ever read and or because this is a podcast and I don't always read as many books as I want to or get to. What's a great book and or a podcast that uh, you love to listen to? I think any of those, I tend to read like more of the self-help books, like the Good to Greats, the, the Malcolm Caldwell stuff. I've done some sort of biography stuff over the years, whether it's an interest in presidents, different varying presidents or history. But I would say most could be psychology books on psychology, Jim Lair, who Jack Grapple, like the, they were the early days of sort of sports science and how are we going to, and biomechanics. So I've done, a, done some fairly deep dives into reading things about sports science and biomechanics. And, but now like, I've never been a massive long reader. I'm more of a short, low attention span reader. So it's way easier for me now to watch a podcast like this or to take a, a quick YouTube or to see something. And then I can always do a little bit of a deeper dive, magazines, things like that, I find are a lot easier for my attention span and just from a time opportunity cost. When you have two boys and, and wife and all that kind of stuff, I'm not the fervent reader, but I definitely, I get into it a little bit more than snippets. Love and I, I, t I totally hear you on that the same. And I'm so thankful that I'm living in an era where whether it's podcasting or video has become so prolific and I can really, I love to consume information and learn. I'm very curious. And so I'd love to, to follow those things. So great, Rob. Um, 
thanks for making time for this. And I'm excited for what we have coming down the pike, but um, just want to thank you for your time on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me, man. I'm, I'm so excited to do this with you. I think we, we talked about this off video, off air, just you and I are similar mindsets, right? We want to learn. We're super excited about racket sports. We're super excited about the wave of Padel that mm -hmm. is about to happen in the States. And so as we learn, you learn, right? To the people that are going to be out there, we're going to learn, we're going to try to bring really interesting subject matter and stories to this podcast and hope that it educates people, but also just gives something interesting for people to listen to and watch. So I'm yeah. pumped, man. Can't wait. Me too. All right. Until next time, we'll see you. All right. Thanks, Connor. Peace. Thanks for listening to another show on SQR Squash Radio. We really do appreciate you taking the time to listen. And we have a quick ask. In an effort to help us grow, if you have a quick minute, please consider sharing an episode with a friend who might be interested or leaving a rating on any of the platforms you listen to your podcast. It would mean a lot to me and the rest of the team. Thanks so much and have a great day.